This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to Rand. I'm Lindsay Cosberg, Vice President for External Affairs at the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our speaker. Dr. Darlene Opfer is the Director of RAND Education, and she also holds RAND's Distinguished Chair in Education Policy. Darlene has conducted policy research studies for a number of local, state, and national governments on the recruitment, retention, and professional learning of educators. She is the co-author of Conceptualizing Teacher Professional Learning and The Influence of School Orientation to Learning on Teachers' Professional Learning Change. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Opfer. Well, thank you, everyone, for for coming to hear about uh, this presentation tonight. Um, I want to start by giving you a little bit of background about it. Uh, First of all, this is not uh, my work solely. Um, It was done in collaboration with another RAND researcher, Anna Saavedra, who's uh, seated at the front here. And this uh, presentation is based on a paper that Anna and I wrote that was commissioned by the Asia Society. And they have a network of cities, um, primarily in Asia and North America, who are engaged in trying to reform their systems in order to teach 21st century learning skills. And they asked Anna and I to take a look at the existing research to do a literature review and try to identify what the literature tells us about the best way to do this. Are there lessons we could be learning from the literature. And so this presentation is based on that work that Anna and I did and the lessons we learned. Um, Perhaps I should start by talking about why people think this topic is so important. Um, I think if you're paying attention to the news, you have probably seen lots of coverage saying that uh, we are not as economically competitive as we used to be. And that students are not being prepared for the current um, the, the jobs that we have, and, and that certainly we see that evidence, um, despite the fact that we have high unemployment right now. That there are some estimations that there are three million jobs available that can't be filled because uh, there are not people with skills who are able to take them. So we have a, a sort of disconnect between the education system that we have and we've had it for a long time, and the the current jobs and the jobs of the future. Um, A second sort of rationale or concern that is people focused on these 21st century learning skills is a civic one. Because both here in the US and abroad, civic participation has been declining. People don't vote, they aren't active in their communities, And so people are starting to pay attention to the idea that having students uh, memorize all the presidents of the United States does not really help them understand how to be active participants uh, in their communities. The sort of third rationale for thinking about the importance of 21st century learning is a global one. Uh, With Skype, the internet, long-haul flights, 
We are probably more connected today than we've ever been. And one of the things that we need to make sure students of today understand is how connected they are. That the things that they're doing here in California or in Pittsburgh where I live have ramifications across the world. Um, so this, these sort of three rationales have made people pay uh, a more attention to what it is that we need to be doing in schools. So what are we talking about? Um, there are lots of sort of lists of what these skills include. Uh, behind me, you see some of them being populated. But we're talking about things like creativity, problem solving, using technology, being able to communicate well. Uh, many of the lists in the, the literature have different skills. Some are on some lists and some are on others. But generally, we found that these are fairly consistent. Um, the other thing is, is that people often talk about these by other names. So if you hear people refer to deeper learning, critical thinking, uh, those are all sometimes synonyms for 21st century learning skills. Anna and I in our paper chose this because it tends to be the, the term used most often, but we certainly could have substituted any of the other terms used to talk about this group. So why do we have this problem? And what are we going to sort of do about it? Uh, and that was the focus of our uh, paper, really focused on teaching. And one of the things that became clear in our research is that despite a lot of effort by schools here in the US and worldwide, the transmission model, actually what I'm doing to you now, <laughs> is still the predominant mode of teaching where you have a teacher stand up in front of the classroom and impart knowledge on their students. Um, and that really is not very helpful in, in teaching these kind of skills. And so we really need to sort of start rethinking what teaching looks like. And some of the best evidence about that comes from what we call the science of learning. And so in the paper that we developed and the rest of my presentation tonight, I'm going to talk about nine lessons. So nine lessons from the science of learning that we identified. The first lesson, make it relevant, teach through the disciplines, simultaneously develop lower and higher order thinking skills, encourage transfer of learning, teach students how to learn, to learn, to learn, address misunderstandings directly, uh, promote teamwork as both a process and an outcome, exploit technology to support learning, and foster students' creativity. So in the rest of this presentation, I'm going to go through each lesson, and I'm going to talk about some examples. What does this look like? What does it mean in terms of the way we should be teaching? So to start with the first one, make it relevant. Okay, so... This has probably been a mantra forever uh, to schools. You know, If you make it relevant, if you make the knowledge uh, relevant to students, they'll get excited about it. They'll want to learn more. They'll have better learning. Um, but that is absolutely part of this. But, but the, the literature on this also talks about it in a slightly different way, which is the use of generative topics. And by that, it's 
sort of this notion that we tend to, in education, teach a mile wide and an inch deep. And so the, the idea is that instead of teaching a mile wide and an inch deep, we need to really identify in our disciplines the key, the key ideas, the key concepts, and focus on those in depth, the generative topics that are going to get students engaged and not get them sort of lost in the, in the weeds and in the trees. Um, David Perkins, who's one of the key uh, scholars in this learning research, talks about it like a baseball team. If you want to understand how baseball works, you need to understand the sort of generative topics of baseball. Hitting, catching, throwing. Um, and, and so if we can sort of make that comparison, if we think about math, then we could say, what are, the, what are the key things? We don't need to know everything about math. We need to know what the key ideas are. And then we need to know how those ideas fit together. What's the big picture? So for example, if we think that probability is a key math idea, so instead of just focusing on learning how to, uh, how to, how to estimate probability, we also need to help students understand how probability fits into mathematical thinking, how it relates to and can be used in the real world. So generative topics in terms of making it relevant. The second lesson is to teach through the disciplines. And again, I think there's some um, myth around this because teaching through the disciplines has been a sort of strong theme in education for a long time. But in the science of learning, it's talking about it a little differently. So not the, can you memorize all the presidents of the United States? Um, but understanding how the discipline works. Understanding why it's important. How knowledge is created. How it's shared. So being a historian... Doing history is teaching through the disciplines. We've got a researcher um, in the Pittsburgh office, Andrew Parker, who recently did a really fantastic study that um, really demonstrated the power of this idea. So he was working with a school district in Portland. He was interested in seeing whether or not they could help students make better decisions, learn to be better decision makers. And so he worked with... Um, history teachers in this district, half the history teachers taught the way they always teach. The other half taught around key decisions in American history. So students were randomized to these two groups of teachers. They did pre and post tests in, in terms of both their levels of decision making and their historical knowledge. And in the end, the ones who, who were being taught around key decisions in American history where they could say, why was this decision made? What are the options that this person had to consider? Could they have made another decision? Going through that process led to both increases in their decision-making ability, but also great increases in their historical knowledge. And in fact, the differences between the ones thought to the decision-making and the regularly taught history it was almost like they had the decision-making class had six months more of history knowledge 
was about what the, the difference was. So this idea is that we can teach uh, these kind of skills at the same time we're teaching the kind of knowledge we want, that want students to have. So the third lesson is about simultaneously developing higher and lower order thinking. So lower, lower order thinking uh, probably occurs fairly often in schools. Uh, students are asked to take an equation and plug numbers in, use numbers if there are certain numbers missing and figure out what would happen. These are common sort of practices to get students acquainted, acquainted with working with these, these kind of equations. But if we're talking about 21st century learning and pushing learning f further, higher order thinking involves things like asking students, so in this equation, why is mass used instead of weight? Could you use your bathroom scale? Would it help you understand this? So to get students to think more conceptually and understand this at a deeper level, and these two things have to happen together. The fourth lesson is about encouraging transfer of learning. This is a really difficult thing for people to get, not just kids, but adults. You learn something in one job, you go to another job, and it's really hard to figure out how to implement it there or when you should and how you should. And so this is something that we need to make really explicit, and, we, and it's difficult. And so the, the, the science on this, the literature, talks about making this transfer explicit, focusing on what can transfer, and that includes things like the ability to work in teams, engagement and learning, problem solving. Then thinking about where it can transfer to, new settings, new jobs, new situations, and then how. And there are two kinds of hows, kind of like the simultaneously lower and higher thinking skills. We've got low road and high road transfer. Low road, if you think about the last equation, E equals MC squared, once, people, once students become comfortable with that, you might have them work on other equations, different scientific equations, but it's a, a sort of lateral kind of transfer. High road, though, is about having them think explicitly about where else they could use this information. So where have you seen E equals MC squared in reality? Have you ever seen an instance where you think that equation is happening? Okay, I've, we can think about car wrecks. Uh, <laughs> there, there are lots of places. Um, but it, you have to think about it. So you have to figure out how the knowledge you have applies to new settings, and you have to make that process of thinking about it explicit. It doesn't just happen. Okay, number five. So the other thing about the literature, which um, was a really strong lesson, was this notion that we can't teach students everything they need to know. 
Uh, we've certainly learned that. We wouldn't need 21st century skills if we were able to do that. Um, and so we have to put them in a situation where they can teach themselves. They can learn to learn over time. Now, this, the, the word up here, metacognition, um, was first termed in 1976 by a scientist named Flaval. But it's about thinking about your thinking and making that thinking explicit. And one of the interesting things about this lesson, learning to learn, is it's both a skill in itself, but it's also a way to other skills. So it sort of does double duty. And so by understanding how you think and learn, it helps you increase your curiosity, promotes self-direction, develops creativity, etc. Um, teachers in doing this, again, this will be sort of a constant theme, is teachers can encourage this by making thinking explicit, by asking students, how do you think? Uh, one of the simplest examples that Anna and I saw in the literature was a, a group of teachers in Australia had children write think in the middle of a piece of paper and then just concept map, brainstorm, what are all the ways you think? How do you think? And that actually improved their ability to think. <laughs> um, just by making them think about thinking. Um, but there are other ways as well. Uh, we came across examples of studies where teachers modeled their thinking. So when they stood up in front of the class, they said, so here's how I thought about this. When I was thinking about this first, I thought about this, and then I did this. So they made their own thinking explicit. Um, one of the key things that we saw in the literature here, though, is that it's really important that we teach kids that intelligence and knowledge is incremental, that it's not fixed. You aren't smart. Everybody can be smarter. Uh, everybody can do it if they work harder. And so this is a sort of key idea to this development of thinking because it capitalizes on failure. Failure is an opportunity to learn something. It's not failure to achieve your goal. And so uh, some of the best practices we saw in the literature were when you have teachers who reward effort. You worked really hard. Rather than saying things like, wow, you're smart, or you got the right answer, because those are sending different signals about there's an absolute sort of knowledge. OK, so moving on to number six. Um, address misunderstandings directly. So, all of us have misunderstandings. Uh, kids think the world is flat until they learn differently. I'm sure you can, always, you can all think of a time where you believed something absolutely, and no matter how many people told you differently, uh, you still believed it until you found out for yourself you were wrong. Okay, this happens in my household all the time with my husband. Um, <laughs> But you have to experience, one of the best ways to learn is to experience yourself that you misunderstood something. And so 
Teachers have to help students through the process of identifying their misunderstandings and working on correcting them. They can do this through the, the generative topics where I talked about in lesson one by helping people, helping students understand the whole picture, how things relate to each other. But they can also do it through modeling. And so one of the examples that we saw in the literature was a group of middle school teachers who were trying to help their students understand how the ecosystem worked. Very abstract concept. And the way that they did it was they had each student became something in the ecosystem. I'm a squirrel, you're an oak tree, etc. And they then took string and tied everybody together. And they said, okay, squirrels, sit down. What happens? It tugs on the oak tree and it tugs on this. Why? What would happen if the squirrels disappeared? What would happen to the oaks? What would happen to, to help them understand the, the interconnection? So they were modeling a really abstract thing so that, that they could understand. Number seven of our lessons. This is another one of these ideas that's a skill and a way to other skills. Teamwork as a process and an outcome. Uh, I mentioned David Perkins, one of the uh, researchers that we uh, drew on for this study, and he really likes the baseball analysis <laughs> analogy. And you know, the idea that you cannot learn to play baseball by yourself. It takes a team. And even if you could learn it by yourself, it wouldn't be very much fun. Uh, so the idea that you know, teamwork plays a really important role in learning. And there are different ways that teachers can get, use teamwork to enhance student learning. Uh, they can have students work in pairs and groups. They can have debates. They can have students tutor one another. Um, and they can use this thing that we, this uh, case that we saw coming out of Asia. It's being used in other places called the studio format. And it's a really interesting concept um, in that in a group, in a class in Asia, they will have five or six students simultaneously work on a problem or an experiment. So they're spread around the room and they're each working on it. And the class is watching. At the end, they then have to talk about what they did and why, and the class gives them feedback. Well, could you have done it this way, or why did you make that decision? So it's very much a sort of co-learning experience. One of the interesting things about it, which I think we don't think about, is in Asia, and Anna and I gave this uh, paper in Hong Kong to a group of cities there, and they're very concerned about lowering class size. And I know this is a big issue in California. It's a big issue everywhere. Um, but for them, they, their teachers want bigger classes. They're afraid they won't have enough examples. That if they can't show their class that a problem can be solved in five different ways, that they're going to lose out on learning. And as class size decreases there, they're less able to use this technique. So it's just a different way of thinking about how we might organize our classes and for what purposes. Um, 
Number eight, exploiting technology to support learning. Um, again, a skill and a process to lead to better skills. Because technology can help us develop new skills, we can use it to transfer knowledge, um, reflect on our own thinking. If you think about the internet and the vast amount of information out there, some of it really good and some of it really bad. Having students be able to decide what's really good and really bad, to synthesize what's there, are all the kinds of skills that we want them to have. But we also saw some examples of technology being used in some really innovative ways. Um, there is a group of teachers who are using a multi-user virtual environment to teach biology. And this uh, multi-user environment is developed to teach the standards of their state. Students enter it, and it's the 19th century. They're now, it looks like a game, like they're in a, a virtual environment game. They're in the 19th century, and an epidemic has broken out, and they have to work in teams to solve the, the epidemic. <coughs> they have to come up with hypotheses, test them, uh, figure out where the epidemic is coming from. And in doing so, they go through all their state science standards, and they work together, solve problems, all the things that we're talking about here. Um, one of the concerns is that technology has been talked about for a long time as being possibly, you know, what's going to change education? And a lot of people say, well, it hasn't. It, it hasn't lived up to its promise. I think the research is pretty clear on that. Um, but we certainly found evidence to say that part of the problem is that we're not giving teachers time to really learn and understand how to use this pedagogically. Uh, and this is really important because changing their teaching style is a difficult task. And so it takes time. And we probably haven't given teachers enough time with these environments for them to be effective. So our last lesson is that students can learn to be creative. This is like the notion about intelligence earlier. Um, I think certainly, you know, I grew up thinking you're either artsy or you weren't. You had musical talent or you didn't. And the, the research is really indicating that that's not true. Uh, maybe people ha are better skilled than others, but people can learn to be more creative. And part of it is putting them in situations where they have to be creative, where they have to test their creativity. Um, and they can do this in lots of different ways. Um, part is if we focus on relevance and they get excited about learning, they'll try their learning out in ways we probably hadn't thought about. Uh, they can do it through transferring it to new situations. Uh, in the disciplines, when they come up with their own hypotheses and they solve problems, that's developing their creativity. So some creativity 
can actually be developed through some of the other lessons. So these nine lessons, the nine lessons that came out of the literature, um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about them is there's a lot here to do. Um, but there's some evidence that five of them are sort of like meta lessons. They're the lessons that lead you to other lessons or other outcomes. And so I talked about, you know, if we encourage transfer of learning, if we encourage students to learn to learn, if we use teamwork as a process, if we exploit technology and we foster creativity, these are ways of getting at some of the other um, skills that we want students to have. But this is not easy, and there are some real challenges um, to doing this. The first challenge is about assessing students and teachers, because for good or bad, we pay attention as educators to the things that we're held accountable for. So if we hold students accountable or we test students on certain things, that's what we're going to teach them. And right now, the assessments that we're using are not very conducive to getting at these kinds of skills. It is asking things like, what do you know about the presidents? And uh, can you solve these equations kind of approach? Now, we have some hope. Um, you may or may not have read that there are groups of states that are working right now on different tests. Um, we don't know if they'll be able to do this, but that's part of their goal, is to start assessing students on deeper learning, to be able to have testing environments using technology that are adaptive to where students are, who can ask them more complex problems and cases to work through. So there's some evidence that we might be moving um, towards a better sort of assessment system for students on these things. Um, but we also need to think about how we hold and assess teachers. And this has been a really um, key focus of work in RAND education for a long time. Because if we want teachers to do these kinds of things and teach in this way, they have to understand what they do well and what they don't do well. They have to be able to have that information to improve their own teaching. And so I'm putting in a sort of plug for you to look out um, at the end of the month. We um, have been, kind of like this presentation, trying to take everything we know, all the research that's been done and ran on uh, teacher effectiveness, teacher evaluation, value-added modeling, and really um, boil it down into some really key concepts to make it accessible to the public, to teachers. And so we're launching a new website that will be just about measuring teacher effectiveness. And it will have a number of these sort of one page about key ideas and what the research tells us. And so look out for that at the end of the month. <laughs> We've been working really hard. Um, and we'd love to hear your feedback, by the way, if we're not getting it right or you still don't understand uh, the research. So assessment is certainly a key challenge, but I think it's a challenge that 
we can accomplish. We can, we can meet that challenge. The more concerning one, I think, is about developing teacher capacity to do this. Um, teachers can't teach students 21st century learning skills if they don't have them themselves. And it's really hard to get adults to change their behavior. We all know that. We all have bad habits. We probably had for a long time. We wish we didn't have. Um, so this problem is a significant one. And we haven't done a very good job. Um, I think Lindsay mentioned in the introduction that teacher professional development is one of my own areas of research. And we haven't done a great job of figuring out how to get teachers to improve their practice, how we get teachers to take something they learn and actually do it in their classroom. Um, but one of the interesting things that were some real echoes for me in doing this paper with Anna is that some of the evidence about how teachers can be trained uh, professionally, some of the best practices that are emerging look very much like these lessons. Teachers learn best when they have the opportunity to collaborate with one another, when they can work on problems of practice, when they can try out new things and then reflect on them. So to think about their thinking in a kind of metacognitive way, reflection. So it's really, it was really interesting to see that some of the lessons that are emerging are very similar to the, to the lessons about student learning. But um, this challenge, I think, is going to be more than just teachers. If we want teachers to teach students 21st century learning and we want them to be 21st century teachers, they have to be in 21st century schools. I mean, the, they can't be in schools that don't help them foster creativity that don't allow them to try out new practices, that don't allow them to fail and learn from their failures. Um, so when we think about how 21st century learning can happen, we can't just stop at the student or can't just stop at the teacher. We have to think about the system. And so the key, I think, to making this happen is to really think about that at all levels. I mean, in, in terms of a, a whole system approach to this. So that's essentially what we've learned um, in, in doing this paper, Anna and I. But uh, we have a lot of research that's related to various aspects um, of this going on at RAND, and some, a lot, probably, that isn't. But I'm happy now to take your questions about the presentation or other things we're doing. Thank you, Darlene. Thank you. Questions, and we'll try to keep them brief and succinct so we can get to as many as possible. We'll we have in. a question on your left. Hi, good evening. Mm -hmm. My name is Cyrus Heckmatt. Uh, I'm an e-learning um, entrepreneur. Mm. Um, I 100% agree with all the nine points that you mentioned. That, I guess, shows what the research, what the research shows. But um, in the 21st century, can we add additional points to that? Can we add a tenth? to the list. I like round the numbers. 
Okay. Do you have an idea for a tenth? I do, and I've okay. created a program. I've myself. You know, here's the thing. Yeah. This is from MBA for a, a project, but brought on doctors who are in the educational field, and the idea is bringing the peak performance training that you work with athletes for that metacognition, self-efficacy, and improving that to believe that you can. Um, adding that to the mindset of students, but in a way that can be taught in the classroom setting. How can e-learning entrepreneurs who have potential content bring it to a forum or submit it to those people that review such sort of content, the teachers, the mm -hmm. validators, to see whether there is muster for it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what we're seeing... Uh, in technology, and, and we've got sort of a whole set of research looking at these technological innovations in education. And um, some of them, I think, are amazing ideas, but most of them don't have the evidence yet. And that's, I think, where we are. It's why we may end up with a tenth, but, <laughs> you know, uh, what, in order to, to get a tenth, we'd have to have the evidence. I mean, you were talking about mindset, and I think that that's... Um, sort of embedded in the notion that we had about incremental uh, intelligence and also creativity being incremental, because that's based on the work of uh, Carol Dweck at Harvard, who has a book called Mindset. And it's about if you have this mindset that you can't, uh, you can't be more intelligent, you can't be more creative, you won't. And that a key thing about learning and being creative and being more intelligent is believing you can be. So that's consistent with where you are. I have a question in the middle. Okay. Um, last Sunday, there was a repeat episode on 60 Minutes about the Khan Academy. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered, is that hocus pocus or is, is that something you found in your research? And a segment of that was also about flipping the classroom. Yes. Where the delivery of the concept was at home or some other place and the mastery of the skills and the, and the challenging of the skills was done in the classroom one-on-one -on -one with a teacher. Okay. Um, so I, th I, I think we're all interested in paying attention to what happens with, the, with Khan Academy and the use of those videos in schools. At the moment, I'm not aware of evidence that talks about their efficacy. There's some really interesting trials going on. I don't know if you know that uh, Los Altos District, the whole district went to flipping. Um, they're using the Khan Academy videos. Um, I should have actually mentioned that in, the, in thinking about developing higher order thinking because that's actually one of their goals is if we can have students use the Khan Academy videos at home, then it'll allow us to get into the sort of in-depth problem solving that pushes higher order thinking. But we don't have any results of how that's working. Um, so, but we're all anxiously waiting to see, <laughs> I think. We, we have a question towards the back. Oh, could you clarify, you, you spoke of studio or, mm. could you clarify your remarks about that? Sure. And then, so this studio format? And then might the 10th thing, uh, item B, actually including neurocognition principles in your learning, mm. in your learning patterns? <laughs> um, so the studio format is where you're treating the classroom like a studio session. So you have someone or in the Asian context, a bunch, uh, doing something and people are watching it. 
they're the audience. But the part of the learning about this is the interaction between the audience and the demonstrator. Uh, so the demonstrator has to explain what they're doing and why, and the audience has to provide feedback to them about that. And that's how the sort of studio concept works. But it does require, if we want to use that format to illustrate things like people can solve problems in different ways, the only way to do that is to have multiple people demonstrating so that you see there are multiple ways. And that's one of their concerns is, if you have a class of only 20 students, you may not get a whole bunch of different ways of problem solving the problem. So they're actually, they're Asian teachers uh, in Hong Kong and Shanghai who are fighting for class sizes to be 80. Yeah. Uh, so that they have enough of these demonstrators. I have a question to the speakers, right? Right. <laughs> Since 1983 and a nation at risk, many of us in K-12 education have faced the requirement for change and have agreed with you and the research and are actually practicing these steps. However, higher ed, in my view, is not. And I wonder if you could speak to students that were preparing for 21st century skills and using 21st century skills and then going into higher ed where their delivery of instruction is still very much um, 19th century. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think Lindsay said I came, I was at University of Cambridge before here, talk about, you know, old-fashioned university settings. Um, and that model, you know, I think what I would say is it, it really is about that last slide and us having to think about this as a system. So, you know, if we only tackle one level we're going to end up with roadblocks just like you're, you're talking about. Um, I, uh, I think there's some discussion, uh, particularly in education, about how we train teachers. Um, so, so the relationship between teacher preparation in universities and what we want teachers to be, there's some discussion about it being at odds. Um, so I think it's a system. It's difficult. <laughs> We have a question back left. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm wondering, we hear over the years, we've heard about a number of different types of schools in K through 12 who have changed the way they teach, who have changed the protocol, who have changed the schedules, who, who go out and meet the families. Many different kinds of things have been done. And we hear about and read about a number of them, and they may not have, some may have some, in, some things in common and some may not have any. And I'm wondering if anything is in the works that's really doing research on these different kinds of programs over the years and what one can learn from that, because we know there are many different kinds of thinkers. Mm -hmm. and the things you're discussing seem to be geared toward um, the most number of people and also, in a certain way, meeting them where they are in your discussion of learning mm. how you learn. Um, but I'm just wondering about that, because with education, it seems to take so long to make change. 
and and I just think that might be a piece that would really provide some some valuable information. Yeah, I, I think that there is a lot of work. Um, work that we've done, work that other people have done on different models of schooling. Uh, probably um, one of the things is, you know, I don't think anyone sort of looked at a bunch at the same, to- same time. I mean, the way research tends to happen is, research here at RAND, is we have a sponsor who comes to us and says, will you help us understand what's going on here or over here? Um, and and we, we have made attempts to learn across our own research, but that might be feeding into... But I also think that it's probably out there, and we're just not capitalizing on what we know. I have a question in the speaker's middle. Hello, Dr. Offer. My name is David Johnson. I did not hear the word parents in your presentation tonight, nor is it on your uh, list there. What has the science said about uh, what the role of parents uh, in the developing and fostering 20th century uh, learning skills? Well, I have to say that I'm, I'm not aware, Anna. <laughs> I'm not aware of any studies that have looked specifically at parents and fostering these skills. Um, I mean, we know a lot about the role of parents and how, um, you know, the more engaged they are, the kinds of things that they do in their home can advance their children's learning. Um, so I think that those general principles um, would apply here, that if we want to foster 21st century learning, that having parents participate in the education of their child is important to that, to accomplishing that goal. But in terms of research specifically on these, that wasn't, or haven't seen that yet. We have a question right up front. So, uh, so it's a sort of an extension of the question the lady asked in the back. Mm-hmm. So you've done research and developed nine different elements. <clears throat> the question is, did your research determine any school districts or any, wherever you did studies, that are using, have, have used whatever they call them, mm-hmm. elements of what you've developed and what their progress has been, what the result, the problems, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. So. Sure. Um, so this isn't, so this was a, um, a literature review, so we we're looking at what evidence is out there, not that Anna and I collected the data. Um, but we certainly had, within the evidence, saw um, that there were school systems out there trying it because they turn up in the, in the literature, in the research. Um, it, the, the group that Anna and I first did this paper for is really interesting because it is, the, I mean, it is systems trying to do this, but they're just starting. So uh, Denver, Seattle... Do you remember? Chicago, Toronto, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai. Seoul. Okay, yeah. So these um, districts have all sort of committed, and the Asia Society is um, helping bring them together, and they meet on a regular sort of basis to talk about how they're doing, what they're doing, what they're learning and trying to do it. Um, But they're early. And most of their talk is about all the barriers <laughs> to getting this done at this point. I have a question to the speakers, right? Hi, thank you so much for your talk. I am a member of the board of a new independent school, the Episcopal School of Los Angeles here. And it's, it's its first week of classes. And I'm very happy to 
see all of the points that you brought up because that's one of the things, all of those things actually is, is what they're trying to implement. And in thinking about your last stance about how do we begin to affect these changes, I wonder, have you, what would be your approach as far as trying to um, develop um, a, a way forward, not just you know in a huge systems you know from top down, yeah. but how do you begin from you know the teacher that you select and putting together a classroom uh, to help try to emulate these points? Well, I mean, I have to say that I think a teacher trying to do it in isolation is going to be really difficult. Um, what we know about how schools operate as organizations and how teachers work, that doing it collectively is important for it becoming embedded and for it changing the culture of the school. So if we're thinking about sort of bottom up, you know, we need to think collectively, not individually. Um, I mean, one of the things about the, the school systems that are participating in this Asia Society thing is that they're, they are thinking about the system. And so the people that they send to the meeting represent the system. So they're sending teachers and the school superintendent and school principals together as a team. So they are trying to sort of think about this isn't a teacher problem. It isn't a school problem, and it isn't a system problem. It's a problem of everybody's. And so we've got to figure out how to do this together to make it happen. We have a question in the center. So, I mean, great presentation. The, the points are fantastic. I got a little sad at the end because I start looking at this system and the teachers who are 20 years in have to learn what they need to learn to do this. And the people who are teaching the new teachers are 20 years in. And there's unions involved who want things to be a certain way. Um, and so this looks like a generational, incremental, terribly difficult process from just a how would you change it um, the, the the standard way. So my question to you is, in looking at this, thinking about this, living this, is there? do you have some sense of a potential for a tipping point for a ripping of the system that suddenly it does function in a different way? Mm. Because when I look at all the details of this, it's a self-reinforcing system. It's going to be really hard without some incremental yeah. some, some tipping point. You know, I, I mean, we... You know, we've, we've all seen the sort of debates about whether uh, technology can provide the tipping point. So if we get enough online environments, enough blended learning, if we have enough learning happening outside of the traditional school building, will it force the building to change and the system to change? Um, you know, I don't know if we're going to get there. Um, what I do know is that the evidence in the literature is that there are people attempting this and being successful at it. So it is possible, so, but it takes commitment. Uh, it's hard. It's hard work. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, so, yeah, I know. It's sort of a sad, <laughs> sad ending, but it's, you know, we can do it. We just have to be committed to doing it and work together. I have a question in the speaker's middle. Stephen Graham, I have a learning problem here. Um, you've given us nine different categories, 
Is there an overall cognitive viewpoint or some general organization point of view in which you could subsume these nine areas to make it easier to grasp them together as units? Or do you have to look at each one as a discrete unit and, and say, okay, I need to memorize all nine? My that brilliant, just goes against what you were talking about. My brilliant colleague Anna is whispering the answer to me. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so she she's she's told me the answer, um, which is that collectively these all all of these things are tend to be thought of as constructivist teaching. Uh, this is a term that's been around for a long time. Um, yeah, it's close, but it's not quite. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to think about you know if there's a a method of cognitive expansion. That, from that point of view. I'm sorry, repeat? I think of it more of developing a cognitive framework of expansion. Mm. Um, the kind of work that Joan Bruner did years ago, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you know, I, right. I mean, the, this sort of notion of learning to learn, for me, is the, the linchpin to this. Because if you can learn to learn, then it sort of ties all, you can do all the other things. Um, but that's my own sort of way of thinking about it, not how the literature would characterize it. We have a question in the center. Actually, in, in response to this gentleman's question, I, I, I would put the technology first. I, all of the things that you suggested are very commendable, but I submit that they are not scalable. They've been We've been thinking about that since the nation at risk to try to do some of these things, and there's no, no great change. There are certainly a lot of great one-off changes, and had some experience with the charter management group where uh, the kids are, are spending two-thirds of their, of their time online, and they are learning faster. The Dell Foundation has done a study. They're learning faster. They're more involved. Uh, it's just not possible to reform a 19th century system with just with just it's that was founded in Prussia based on a assembly line. Uh, uh, you, uh, it just the, the personnel has changed. I mean, one of the assumptions is that you have underpaid, highly qualified women and uh, people that had to work in a fraction of what they can get today. So it's wonderful on one-offs, but there has not been a district in our country in the last 28 years that has changed except when they've had a strong leader and as soon as that leader goes that that district goes down i certainly agree there's not enough research yet but the anecdotes say that the only possible answer is uh, with digital learning so i would put that first and then the others will fall into line both for systems and schools okay well i probably disagree with you about that we can change the system because I'm not willing to give up um, <laughs> hope on that. But the other thing I think it, that you said the word good technology, um, and that's key. Because the other thing we see in the research is that technology can have some really bad results if people are using it in very traditional ways. And so, you know, technology has to be used like this um, for it to end up with the kinds of results that you're talking about. If time. Yeah, and seeing. Okay. We have time for one last question to okay. the speaker's right. Um, if you don't mind, I wanted to go back to that Asian studio model okay. that you talked about with the 80 pupils. Uh -huh. Isn't it 
that that applies to Asia because Asia has been more of a monolithic society and certainly California is multicultural and diverse. And if you have a classroom, you have children coming from many different directions. And if you have 80, I don't think you need 80 students in a classroom to get diversity. And I don't know, but 80 students in a classroom scares the hell out of me. <laughs> um, well, I think a couple of things. I mean, one of the things that we've learned um, is that they're not so monolithic anymore. So Shanghai specifically is incredibly diverse, has many languages spoken, has a lot of poverty that they're dealing with. And so as a school system, they probably look more like LA Unified uh, you know, than, than other places in the US. Um, so I think you know, in terms of diversity, it's probably there. But it's not, for them, it's not diversity about people or it's about diversity about the way people approach problems. And one of the things is that when you have a small number, uh, you get a lot of homogeneous thinking. So for them, what they're trying to do is make sure that they have enough different kinds of thinking to illustrate for students. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if it will work here. I know that they're extremely committed to it and that they don't find uh, the numbers problematic. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.